Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 32 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, September the 9th. First, I'll be talking to Peter Dassos, the General Manager of Franklin.ai, and we'll be talking about the role that artificial intelligence plays in the health sector. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market. But now let's talk to Peter Dassos. Peter, what role does artificial intelligence solution play in the health sector? My personal perspective is it actually is is going to play an increasingly large one. I'm, I'm pretty excited about the opportunities ahead of us. And when I think of AI in the health sector, I think of it providing peace of mind with every sort of single diagnosis. Um, I'm considering it as a, a peer review on every single patient case. And so you don't have to look far to see that healthcare systems globally are under increasing pressure uh, and need support. And I think intelligent software solutions, AI-driven software solutions, are part of the key to transforming not only access to healthcare, but the quality of healthcare across a, a range of specialties. And, uh, and I, if I think specifically about cancer, 100% of cancer diagnoses require some form of laboratory pathology. And with cancer rates on the rise, increasing populations, there's never been a more critical time to focus on solutions or smart solutions that can support patients and clinicians. So basically what the AI solutions do is they trawl through all the treatments and solutions for the condition. Would that be right? Yeah, so one of of the areas we're looking at specifically as a Harrison joint venture in Franklin AI is we're really focused on comprehensive AI. So rather than looking at a subset of findings for a given case, we're looking at a comprehensive or broad number of findings for a given case. And uh, if, if I use pathology as an example, or histopathology, histopathology is the study of, of tissue. So if, a, if there's a suspected cancer or malignancy, a patient may receive a biopsy. That biopsy will be sent to a lab and processed, sliced up and placed onto slides. And a doctor is going to analyze those slides and those tissue samples. Now, I, I think the real benefit of comprehensive AI 
is that it can analyze a tissue sample, not just for one or two or three abnormalities, but for a broad range of abnormalities. And, uh, you know, that's one of the key differentiators we're looking at delivering with our AI solutions is the ability to look broadly at a specimen or multiple specimens and share those insights with a doctor. Something that no ordinary doctor can do on their own. Well, I, I like to think that a number of doctors are doing this on a daily basis. And 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 my my perspective on this is it's almost like a, having a, a colleague tapping them on the shoulder and asking them for a second opinion on every single case rather than cases that may be of interest. So that that benefit of a almost a hundred percent second opinion or hundred percent peer review on uh, every analysis performed. You, you come from an engineering background, is that right? That's right, yeah. So studied engineering at University of New South Wales. And actually my final year thesis was focused on understanding distortion caused by cochlear implants in brain MRIs and how that could impact diagnosis. So that sort of started my journey into med tech and my interest in biomedical engineering, and then spent a, a roughly a decade at ResMed launching cloud and software solutions to, to support patients as well as, as doctors. And very recently, just transitioned into Harrison AI with the primary goal of helping to set up their next new venture, and that is Franklin AI. So what does it take in this modern age to build an AI product? in the health sector from an engineering perspective? Yeah, I, I would say a, a coordination of a, a large number of independent puzzle pieces and, and layering on top of that a very large amount of data. So data is really what curated data is really what feeds complex and capable AI models. And so we're in the process of building a very large team with a, a number of diverse skill sets. There's the AI component, so that's the model itself, an advanced algorithm capable of detecting differences in morphology. And morphology is really differences in shapes or patterns of cells across specimens. There's also the front end team. So that is, you know, what is the doctor looking at when they're making a diagnosis? Is it intuitive? Is the software easy to understand? Does it seamlessly integrate with their workflows? There's a platform engineering team. They're essentially working on all the technology under the hood. How do we link the AI model to that front end that the doctor will work with on a daily basis? And there's a clinical team and they're really focused on working with us on a daily basis. Uh, they'll review prototypes, provide feedback and make sure we're progressing in the right direction to have a, a usable and, and meaningful product. And one of the key areas of focus or one of the most valuable areas is once we've actually developed that model and that software is clinically validating it and proving that it is highly accurate and it's ready to go to market and it's ready for use uh, with doctors and patients and then publishing that, that evidence in peer-reviewed journals across the globe as part of our message that we're here, we're comprehensive, we're accurate, we're safe and, and we're ready for use in, in daily clinical practice. So in short, I think it's careful planning and curation of a number of these puzzle pieces putting them together at the end and wrapping it up into a, into a product. That's quite interesting because it, it fits in with everything I know about AI, that for every new AI application that comes along, it seems to create so many other jobs 
to go with it. So it requires a whole team of people to work with it. Yeah, absolutely. So so right now at, at, at Franklin, we've got a team of 30 plus specialists across those areas of, and I didn't even mention some of the additional ones, which is, you know, regulatory affairs, quality assurance, and, you know, a number of different engineering specialties and subspecialties, as well as AI teams. Right. And, and, and that team is actually projected to grow to 70 plus at Franklin in, uh, I believe, uh, by mid next year. That's our goal. So where is the health tech industry heading in terms of AI and uh, how is it shaping our future? I, I believe that this concept of augmenting doctors with AI insights is going to become the norm in modern medicine. And so when I say augmenting doctors, I mean a doctor working with AI. And so when we run a lot of our validation studies, we're not looking at how a doctor performs versus AI. We're looking at how a doctor performs with AI compared to a doctor without AI. So I think this, this concept or this paradigm of a second pair of eyes on every single case is going to apply not just to pathology, but to a number of areas across modern medicine. And so you know, we've, we've talked about healthcare systems being under pressure globally, even in Australia, the Royal College of Pathologists uh, of Australasia are reporting on current and projected pathologist shortages. Yeah. So, you know, some of these reports are indicating the need to double trainee intakes just to keep up with the projected service demand associated with the aging population. So, you know, when I think of global healthcare shortages, across medical specialties. And I think the ability to provide that second pair of eyes or an instant second opinion, I think of peace of mind for doctors and patients. And, and I think that it's absolutely going to become the norm as part of a doctor's daily workflows. There's going to be an expectation to have that and have that ready. And uh, so in short, yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity across a number of areas in, in medicine to make an impact. And I think we're literally just scratching the surface right now with a ton of growth ahead. Well, that would mean that all doctors will have to be across AI. I, I, I would think so. And, uh, and we're not just talking about pathologists here, it potentially even uh, emergency admission or right, talking yes. to your GP or, or a number of other areas. Absolutely. So what's next for Franklin? And what's Franklin's growth plans? Yeah, so, so right now uh, we're very focused on talent and, uh, and building the team. So we're looking at product, engineering, clinical AI, regulatory, QA, a lot of specialized team members that we're pulling in. As I mentioned, we've got a team of 30 specialists across uh, those disciplines, and the goal is to scale up to 70 by June 2023. But from a, from a product perspective, you know, pathology is a, a very large space to enter, and that's where we're focused. But we acknowledge we're starting in histopathology. Yeah. And histopathology is really the study of tissue. So the study of tissue samples. Yeah. And you know, a large volume of biopsies are performed every day. And we're working to support specialists every single step of the way as those volumes continue to increase. And so while we're focused on pathology, broadly speaking, we're starting in histopathology and that's going to keep us pretty busy and the team pretty busy in the near term. So there's a lot of work cut out and a lot of growth to come. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And histopathology, again, is a study of, of tissue. And there's a number of different types of tissue specimens we can analyze too. So there's, a, there's quite an extensive roadmap ahead. Well, Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, Craig, what's ahead in the market for the week starting the 12th? 
Well, I think probably the major focus is going to be on the job figures coming out on, on Thursday. That's always really the, the highlight of the month, just as it is in the United States. We do know that the jobless rate is at a 48-year low of 3.4%. But we had a little bit of volatility in the July figures in terms of employment. We had the employment down by 87,000 in terms of full-time jobs. So full-time jobs were down by 86,900 and part-time jobs were up 46,000. So overall employment was down a pretty hefty 40,000 yes, 900. So a little bit of volatility, I think, coming into the figures. There's a bit of seasonality that occurred timing of the school holidays, the, the time that people are taking off sick, that's basically all affecting the results at the, at the moment. But uh, we do know that the job market is, is tight and uh, we just want to see whether there's uh, further evidence of, of that. Of course, that has significant implications in terms of wages and, and then in terms of uh, prices. So probably the employment figures you know, are the highlight coming out on Thursday. Uh, we start off the week, uh, though, with the, the Commonwealth Bank household spending intentions that comes out on, on Tuesday. Tuesday is a big day. We've got consumer sentiment figures, both the weekly report and also the monthly report. So the weekly report's produced by ANZ Roy Morgan and the monthly report by Westpac and the Melbourne Institute. So consumer sentiment's happening on, on Tuesday. We've got the Bureau of Statistics with the value of dwellings. We've got overseas arrivals, uh, both the July and the, the early August figures. And then we've got the National Australia Bank Business Survey. So it's all happening on, on the Tuesday. So really, yes, you know, so Tuesday, the highlight in the first part of the week, we've got the labour account figures from the Bureau of Statistics on Wednesday, the employment figures, as I mentioned, on Thursday, and the Reserve Bank Bulletin on Thursday. Probably also need to pay, pay some attention to what we saw in terms of the NAB Business Survey in the preceding month of July. We had confidence at 6.9 points. That's still above the long-term average. And it's the highest levels in three months. But confidence, yes, you know, sort of not, not overly you know, sort of buoyant. But uh, business conditions actually you know, sort of quite good. Reading of 20.3 was the, the reading for business conditions in the last National Australia Bank survey. That was the highest levels in 13 months. A lot of people scratch their heads and say, why is business conditions seemingly so good? Well, I think the major reason is that Companies are still getting the revenues coming through, so revenues still rising quite quite nicely. But what we've seen in terms of expenses or costs, a lot of businesses are choosing to pass on the higher costs to to consumers, and that's preserving their margins and preserving their profitability. And that's why I think yes, why we're seeing uh, business conditions rated as so good. Really, over the profit reporting season that we've just had, we saw a similar sort of outcome. Uh, there when uh, reports about the, the earnings companies, companies basically passing on higher costs to, to consumers. And if you look at the profit reporting season, despite all manner of factors which were constraining uh, growth for, for the economy and for, for companies, companies are weathering the storm. They're, they're doing yesterday okay. So that, that NAB business survey will be interesting to watch out for Tuesday. But again, as I say, the highlight is probably the, the job figures coming out on Thursday. That NAB business survey and, for that matter, the consumer confidence figures are significant because the recent profit reporting season showed that while businesses are performing well, given the relatively difficult financial year, there seems to be some loss of momentum in profit growth. Yeah, so I think, yes, you know, so when you think about you know, so everything that's happened you know, over the last 12 months, the fact that you know, so costs have been rising, the fact that we've got a tight job market as well, and that's pushing up you know, so wages. 
and it's one of the influences on companies as well. We've got the the global inflation impulse, and particularly in terms of um, higher energy prices or oil prices, so that's happening at the same time. We've got the supply chain issues that's prevalent right the way across the, the globe as well. So when you think about all the pressures that companies are under, you would think that profits, you know, are starting to be squeezed. So a little bit of momentum, as you said, is probably the better way to characterise it. A bit of momentum coming out of profitability. And really, we, we will have to wait and see when the supply chain difficulties come under control, that we get more people back at their workplaces, able to produce the goods that we, we need, uh, supply and demand come back into to, to balance. Once that starts occurring, then central banks will be you know, so less gung-ho about lifting interest rates. And if that's the, the situation, uh, then we might see a little bit more of a settled uh, business environment. Well, when the supply chain issues kick in, when, when supply chain issues are fixed, you would expect to see inflation taper as well. Yes, in, inflation is very much the, the key focus at the moment. And as you, you mentioned, it is the supply chain difficulties that we're seeing, as well as tight job markets. Certainly in Australia, that's very much the case, the tight job market. It's very much the case in the United States as well, a similar sort of unemployment rate that we have here in Australia. And I think one of the structural changes that we're seeing in terms of job markets across the globe is the ageing of the, the baby boomers. So baby boomers moving out of the workforce into to retirement. Not the, uh, the other cohorts, Generation X, Generation Y, and uh, the millennials, they're not filling the, the void as yet. So that's why we've got unemployment rates, which are more in keeping with what we saw in the 1970s than what we're seeing, you know, in the, say, the 1990s or the, the noughties. Uh, the coming week has got a big focus on prices in the United States. So on uh, Tuesday, the consumer price index is released. On Wednesday, producer prices. And then on Thursday, export and import prices. So there is a perception that we may, have been, may be seeing a peaking in consumer price inflation, so that consumer price index. So that will be very much focused on, on Tuesday, whether those supply chain difficulties are ending and whether you know, so the price increases are coming off a little bit. Certainly uh, on the Monday next in the coming week, we've got consumer inflation expectations in the United States, and they're at five-month lows. So while in Australia over the, uh, the coming week, we're focused on the job figures as well as on things like business and consumer sentiment, it's very much the focus on activity readings in the United States and also the inflation figures. And in terms of activity readings, talking about the retail sales figures coming out on Thursday and industrial production coming uh, also coming out on, on Thursday. Uh, big week in terms of Chinese economic data as well. We do have to wait till Friday, though, but the Chinese data dump, retail sales, production, investment, uh, unemployment, the house price index, all coming out on Friday. So it is a very big week in terms of economic data. And hopefully by the end of this, the week, we'll have a little bit more information about where we are at the moment and where we're going, particularly in terms of inflationary pressures around the globe. And when we think about yes, around the globe, certainly we are thinking very much about the United States. Now, in terms of uh, the jobs figures, I mean, last time they were down at 3.4%. Where do you expect them to be this time? Well, I think we, what we are going to see is a stabilisation of the job market around about 34 or 3.5%. There's an outside risk. And uh, in fact, uh, some other economists around town are talking about unemployment rates below 3%. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, the, the Reserve Bank saying that we could see rates down around about 3% as well. But we have got at the same time interest rates going up and things are starting to slow down a little bit. So we think that the jobless rate probably you know, sort of holds somewhere around about you know, sort of that 3.5%, maybe a couple of points you know, sort of lower than that. But we are very much close to, to the fabled you know, sort of area of full employment. Right. So if it falls down to about 3.3, 3.2, that's about as far down as it'll go. Is that what you say? Well, yes, I suppose if it gets down to those sorts of levels, then we may have to recalibrate in terms of the situation. But we do know that wages are already starting to, to, to rise. Uh, the advertised salaries index that we've just had out from, from SEEK is a really good measure. It's one of the more forward-looking you know, sort of measures in terms of wages. We do know that wages are rising probably closer to 4% annual rate you know, at, at present. And if the job market continues to tighten, that'll put more upward pressure on wages and therefore in terms of prices. So we we believe that we're pretty much close to as low as they're, they're likely to go in terms of that jobless rate. But uh, we can never say never in this sort of environment that we're in. And indeed, indeed, the figures with the wages, so the last wage, wages price index figures were showed wages were still way behind, but do you expect that to change? Yeah. Well, gradually over time, I think that, that will be the, the case. When we think of the wage price index or the wage cost index, that's measuring things like public sector you know, sort of wages. It's measuring things like you know, sort of banks, like you know, sort of the Commonwealth Bank, which you, know, sort of you may only have wage setting for the cohort of employees done you know, sort of once a year. If you're changing jobs, though, and that's what's picked up in the advertised salaries index, if you're changing jobs and moving to new jobs, that's where yes, the wages are really starting to, to rise. So the wage price index is probably a more lag measure of wages in the economy. And I think we're going to have to be focusing our attention more on forward-looking indicators like uh, the advertised salaries index. Well, Craig, that's all fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Liz Trust has said she will press ahead with plans for the UK to be a low-tax economy with less focus on wealth redistribution under her premiership, despite calls for caution from Tory grandees. Britain faces a cluster of daunting problems, surging inflation, a slowing economy, rocketing energy bills, foundering public services and lackluster productivity. Ms Trust declared that now is the time to tackle the issues that are holding Britain back and said her priorities were cutting taxes curbing increases in energy bills and overhurling the healthcare system. Asked about her national insurance policies, she said it was fair that her planned tax cut would benefit the highest earners 250 times more than the poorest, arguing that it was wrong to view all economic policy through the lens of deep redistribution. 
As analysts warned that relying on boosting economic growth to reduce income inequalities would increase disparities, Tory grandees standard sounded the alarm over what they said risked being a doctrinaire approach. In her only in-depth media interview of the, of the two-month Tory leadership campaign, which took place after voting had closed, Trust told BBC One Sunday with Laura Kunzenberg show she'd provide immediate help with energy bills if elected, but declined to say how. Pledging to ensure it's secure long-term energy supplies, Trust said she did back some aspects of renewable sources, but stressed her plans to push ahead with more North Sea drilling and fracking for shale gas. Reports on Sunday night said that a team was dis were discussing freezing gas and electricity bills with industry leaders. The level of the price cap has not been set, but according to the Times, the cost of the package is understood to be at the level of the COVID furlough scheme. On the economy, she emphasised her, her prioritisation of tax cuts, saying it was more important to grow the economy than to try to reduce income inequalities. She said cutting the tax burden on the richest would increase the underlying growth rate of the UK. And Chinese authorities have extended COVID-19 lockdowns of Chengdu and Shenzhen, backtracking on promises of freedom for tens of millions of people in the southern megacities following mass testing campaigns. At least 68 cities are in, are in partial or full lockdown, according to data from the country's National Health Commission, fueling anxieties that restrictions initially planned for days could extend into weeks or longer, as occurred in Shanghai this year. The sweeping restrictions that upend lives and businesses stand in stark contrast with a return to normal life in much of the world, where societies have mostly pivoted to living with the virus. But China insists that zero COVID is saving lives. Health officials have cited the relatively low elderly vaccination rate and inadequate rural health care as hurdles to relaxing restrictions, but Chinese public health experts say political factors have played an outsized role too. Xi Jinping, a staunch advocate for the country's uncompromising zero COVID strategy, is poised to be anointed as the country's top leader for another five years at the 20th Party Congress, scheduled to start on October 16. The highly choreographed affair is meant to be a moment of celebration and vindication of the achievements of the party and of Xi personally over his decade in power, and a severe outbreak risks undermining that triumphant image, experts say. China's manufacturing and technology hub said on Monday that restrictions would continue for three days in parts of the city where cases have been reported after a weekend lockdown of some of its 17.5 million residents. On Sunday, the city reported 71 new coronavirus cases. The city's COVID situation is severe and complex. The number of new infections remains relatively high and community transmission risks still exist, warned Ling Hangzhen, a local official. Chengdu, a city of 21 million and the capital of Sichuan province announced a four-day lockdown last week, but authorities reported 140 cases on Sunday and said the restrictions would persist until at least Wednesday. The measures sparked panic buying across the city, with videos spreading online of people piling up their cars with pork and vegetables. Reflecting the sweeping impact of President Xi Jinping's zero COVID authorities, authorities have urged citizens to stay home for the upcoming mid-autumn festival. The decision has dealt a blow to hundreds of millions of workers who often make a rare trip to their hometowns for family gatherings for the annual event, which starts on Saturday. The latest restrictions also added to pressure on the world's second biggest economy, which has been grappling with the liquidity prices in the property sector. The economy expanded 0.4% year-on-year in the three months of the end of June, below the 1.2% forecast by economists. Uncertainty over China's growth prospects and concerns about project incompletion will largely drive weak home-buy demand over the next 6-12 to 12 months. COVID-19 disruptions to business activity and sales execution will also dampen consumer sentiment, said Daniel Zhu, an analyst at Moody's, the ratings agency. 
and at their September board meeting, the RBA once again decided to hike rates by 50 basis points, increasing the cash rate to 2.35%. It marks the fifth consecutive rate rise this year and returns the cash rate to its highest level since December 2014 and is poised to increase further as central bank seeks to tame solar inflation, which is tipped to hit 7.8% by the end of the year. And gross domestic product rose 0.9% in the June quarter, following a revised 0.7% in March, data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed. On an annual basis, GDP added 3.6%, following a 3.3% gain in the previous year. The figures were broadly in line with economists' expectations, with a medium forecaster penciling in quarterly growth of 1%. And Australia has recorded its 13 consecutive current account surplus after booming coal prices drove a record $43 billion trade surplus. Australia's current account surplus jumped from $2.8 billion to $18.3 billion in June on the back of a $16 billion boost on the trade surplus, which now stands at $43.1 billion. The value of the country's exports increased by 14.7% in June, while the value of imports increased by just 4.6%, according to data released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics on Tuesday. The driver of the record trade surplus was a 15.6% increase in resources exports. Coal exports increased by 40.4%, while other mineral fuel exports increased by 20.2% in June. Australian Bureau of Statistics Acting Head of International Statistics, Grace Kim, said annual exports of coal exceeded $100 billion for the first $100 billion for the first time. Coal prices have soared since Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the world seeks alternative sources of energy. Benchmark Newcastle coal futures are trading at US $460 a tonne, more than doubling since the start of the year. And super funds are wary of the risk of investing in social and affordable housing and say the return is limited. A shortfall in social and affordable housing is predicted to cost the economy more than $1 billion a year by 2036. Assistant Treasurer and Minister for Financial Services Stephen Jones held a roundtable with Peak Industry Group Association of Superannuation Funds of Australia this week in a bid to secure their investment. The meeting followed the Prime Minister and Treasurer last week announcing the government would make up $575 million from the National Housing Infrastructure Facility available to encourage private investment, particularly from superannuation. That move was aimed at improving the risk-reward ratio for super funds. The superannuation sector has not opposed the move, but is yet to be convinced. And EY's global leaders are expected to provide 13,000 partners this week with the details of a plan to split the firm into an audit and a consulting business. But a vote on the proposal will not happen until January at the latest, a move that could lead to the biggest shake-up in the global professional services and audit market in more than two decades. A meeting of the small group of global leaders was held about the, pl about the plan overnight. And the firm's partners will receive a detailed package of information about the split, including details of their payout on Thursday. There will be a vote in January on whether to split the firm. And Australians facing cost of living crunch will cop higher prices at the Bowser and steeper mortgage repayments, with Jim Chalmers reinstating the full fuel excise to boost the budget bottom line, but pledging to monitor attempts at gouging. Amid interest rate hikes and soaring inflation, the Treasurer ordered the competition watchdog to ramp up surveillance of prenatal prices and crack down on profiteering when the 44.2 cents a litre fuel excise returns on September the 29th. In a bid to neutralise attacks from the Coalition over cost of living pressures in the final two parliamentary sitting weeks before the October 25th budget, the Federal Government on Monday announced the largest indexation increase to welfare payments in more than 30 years. Social Security payment increases for more than 4.7 million Australians, including dole recipients, pensioners and single parents, follows pressure from the Greens and community groups to lift the job seeker rate. 
As motorists brace for higher petrol prices in the December quarter, when inflation is tipped to hit 7.75%, the Reserve Bank of Australia board heaps more pressure on households and lifts the cash rate to 2.35%. The RBA has flagged it will likely authorise further interest rate hikes in coming months. And the architects of enterprise bargaining, Bill Kelty and Paul Keating, have blamed the silly, no-worse-off tests of the Fair Work Commission and Julia Gillard's Industrial Relations Law for undermining productivity and overall wages growth. Kelty said he himself had negotiated deals that left some people worse off, but meant productivity improvements were fairly shared via a sustained increase in real wages. The former ACTU secretary describes the current system as crazy, insisting that bargaining should be simple, without any agreement with lawyers, unions and employers not subject to approval or rejection by the Commission. Following the Jobs and Skills Summit, the Albanese government will start negotiating with unions and employers this week to try to come up with a simpler, fairer and more flexible system of enterprise bargaining. Some employer groups are highly sceptical that changes will go far enough in overcoming the roadblocks, particularly those introduced by Julia Gillard over a decade ago as former Industrial Relations Minister and then Prime Minister. Unions in the Albanese government are already arguing that no worker can be worse off as a result of the changes. This threatens a repeat of the policy dead-end produced by the Gillard reforms. At the behest of a new generation of union leadership, Gillard replaced Keating's broad no-disadvantage test with a complicated new better-off overall test assessed by the Commission. In the 1980s and 1990s, Kelty and Keating, the two giants of the ACTU and Labor, cooperated to implement a series of economic and social reforms that underpinned real wages growth and productivity increase. And the soaring profits unveiled by Australian miners this week were a beacon of light amid the gloom dominating economic headlines. Yet the coming months look more challenging, particularly for companies without exposure to clean energy. Miners that dig up materials vital to decarbonisation led the way in the first half, with Pilbara Minerals and Alcom Limited reporting record earnings as prices for lithium soared. Traditional miners didn't miss out on the bonanza though, with diversified base metals producer South32 and pure play fossil fuel miner Whitehaven Coal reporting strong results. That followed BHP Group's unprecedented earnings haul. The eye-popping profits in Australia were reaped on the back of surging commodity prices and coal prices soaring since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But with problems such as battered supply chains, a slowing global economy and waning demand in top customers and China looking hard to budge, the good times for many Australian miners may be over. And gig economy executives have been told to expect legislation the first half of next year that will expand the powers of the Fair Work Commission to set minimum paying conditions for their workers. Deliveroo Australia Chief Executive Edmund Manus said the government had told participants of a roundtable discussion with the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations last month that consultation would occur for the remainder of the year. The government's collection promise to give the Fair Work Commission powers to set minimum pay and working conditions for employee-like workers was never intended to be on the agenda of last week's Jobs and Skills Summit. Employment and Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke said different segments of the gig economy would likely to be treated differently. And the Australian Federal Police has set up a new cryptocurrency unit to target money laundering as more criminals seek to bypass the financial system and funnel money offshore. The increased focus on illicit money transfer via crypto comes as the AFP eclipsed a $600 million revenue raising target after the task force set up to ensure crime does not pay for criminals reach its goal two years ahead of schedule. 
The national manager of the AFP's Criminal Asset Confiscation Task Force, Stefan Jurger, said the use of crypto in criminal activity had increased significantly since the AFP's first seizure in early 2018, warranting the establishment of its first dedicated cryptocurrencies capabilities team in August. AFP Commissioner Rhys Kershaw established the Criminal Asset Confiscation Task Force in February 2020 with the goal of restraining $600 million in proceeds of crime by the end of financial year 2024. Since February 2020, the AFP has seized $380 million in residential and commercial property, $200 million in cash and bank accounts, and $35 million in cars, boats, aircraft, artworks and luxury items and cryptocurrency. Van Battery Electric Vehicle Sales have hit a new record, accounting for almost one in 20 new cars sold in August. New figures from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries shows. FCAI Chief Executive Tony Weber said sales of pure electric vehicles came in at 4.4% in August, well above the run rate for the year-to-date of about 2%. Once hybrid and plug-in electric vehicles were added in, vehicles with some electric component in the drivetrain accounted for more than 10% of vehicle sales in Australia for the calendar year so far. Tesla remains a dominant force in the EV market, with its market share still still sitting at more than 80%. And Dan Murphy's is the latest national retailer to unveil a hiring spree as the Australian economy begins to suffer from a major shortage of workers, with the beer, wine and spirits giant offering on-the-spot job interviews to recruit 2,200 new team members. From Monday until Sunday, September the 11th, anyone can get a 10-minute interview on the spot by simply expressing their interest to a team member at one of the 258 Dan Murphy stores around the country. The drinks retailer owned by Endeavour Group, which also owns convenience bottle shop BWS, is looking to hire more than 2,200 casual customer assistants as it gears up for summer and the busy Christmas training period. The majority of roles are a minimum of 20 hours per week. Many offer immediate starts and all come with heaps of benefits. Dan Murphy's hiring spree comes as Australian companies, from major national corporates to small corner stores like cafes, restaurants and hairdressers are desperately short of staff. Many have been forced to close their doors for some days or operate on reduced hours through the week as roles go empty and businesses can't serve customers. At last week's Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra, businesses highlight the worker shortage as a key handbrake on the economy, with the federal government later announcing a policy to increase the migration cap to record 195,000 from 160,000 in an effort to fill roles begging for workers across the country and across many sectors, from healthcare to IT and hospitality. And profit margins at Australian oil refineries increased by more than 200% in the June quarter amid global supply disruptions and soaring demand. In its quarterly report on the Australian petroleum market, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission said the average refiner margin, or the difference between the price of refined petrol and the price of crude oil, increased by 7.8 cents per litre in March to 24.1 cents per litre in the June quarter. The competition regulator said strong global demand for refined products, tightening supply because of refinery closures, Russian sanctions and reduced exports of refined products from China all contributed to fatter profit margins. And a survey by Chief Executive Women showed that just 14 ASX 200 companies were helmed by women in 2022, only four more than six years ago. The proportion of key operational roles occupied by women at ASX 200 companies rose just 3 percentage points to 15% between 2017 and 2022. By contrast, the proportion of functional roles held by women jumped by a third to 40% over the same period. However, the survey found that across the broader ASX 300, the number of companies with no women in executive leadership teams rose to 47 in 2022, from 44 last year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Jane Livesey, Cognizant CEO of Australia New Zealand and a director of Contino and Servier. 
I'll also be talking to economists on this leg. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.